Welcome to the Canadian Orthodox Podcast, a show devoted to the exploration of the Christian faith in all of its mystery and diversity within the unique intersections of the Canadian context. Today's episode is a roundtable discussion with Chris, Doug, and myself, recorded back in May as a follow-up to our previous episode with Jeremy Duncan, reflecting on some of the ideas that stood out to us in that conversation. If you haven't already listened to that episode, I would highly recommend going back and checking it out, both because Jeremy has some great things to say that I think are well worth listening to, but also because it will provide the necessary context for our discussion today. Personally, I find that I ingest a lot of podcast content over the course of a week, and as such, I'm not always giving myself time to deeply consider all of the things that I'm taking in or testing ideas out in dialogue with other people. Because of this, we're recording these roundtable episodes after each interview as a way to facilitate that further reflection and consideration, both for ourselves as well as for you, our listeners. And whether you share our perspectives in the end or not, we hope that this can help to enrich the conversations that you are a part of as we all explore the possibilities of a contextualized Christian faith here in Canada. This conversation was a lot of fun to record and and open up some great rabbit holes to dive down as we consider the contributions of Girard and the compelling ways that Jeremy has understood and, and integrated them into his community of faith. I'm really excited to open up this conversation to you guys, and I hope that you enjoy it as much as I did. We're talking about René Girard and his contributions to, um, and potential contributions to present theological discourse and the life of the church. But then we're also mediating that through Jeremy Duncan's um, interpretation of Girard and his his application of those things, and so, in a certain way, we're going to have to parse out between between both of those things. But I think that also makes it a really interesting conversation. So maybe what we'll do, um, we can just start by going around uh, between the three of us. Um, we'll start with the question: What was something that you guys found? particularly um, compelling or interesting, surprising? What, what stood out to you in the conversation? Shall I go first? I can go first. Um, All right, let's do Chris. I really, when we started, or when you, you guys started talking about the relationship of culture to atonement theory um, mm. and his whole discussion on that was a massive breath of fresh air. Mm. I think what he said, which was particularly poignant, was that this could be really, really freeing to somebody, particularly within the evangelical context. And I thought, absolutely. And that was when you guys were talking about the um, about the intricacies of penal substitution theory, or rather talked about the intricacies of the relationship of other atonement theories that weren't penal substitutionary theory. And I thought that was just great. I, I really liked how that's obviously where he went with it. But I also liked how he didn't quite walk back on his statement, but I, I liked how he included every single one of them within their greater historical context and what they actually mean for, for working with each other and not just working with their times. I think that was um, a point of particular beauty when he was talking about in that um, Christus Victor wasn't just important for its time, but it's also important for us now that we 
you know, our <laughs> our good postmodernists and modernists who can kind of pull back and and take a look at kind of the narratives within within history and, and to see how those work together. I think it's really beautiful what he's doing there. But I think it's particularly compelling that he's starting to throw in kind of that fourth that fourth dimension of, of time into this mm -hmm. whole kind of within those narratives into the greater narrative, which is, of course, within the greater narrative of the universe and Christianity. I think that was just, oh, man, when he started talking about that, when you guys were talking about that, I was just, yeah, I loved that. I was right there. Well, and I think I refreshing is a good way, a good way to put it, because it was like rather than talking about, OK, you know, evangelicals today we we're we're stuck on penal substitution and it's just the wrong theory and what we need to do is just you know if we just go back to christus victor it's just the better theory to talk about the objective reality of what of what's happening and a lot of that conversation misses the like it misses them on the meta level like what's actually going on when we're doing things like atonement theories like the reason atonement theories exist isn't like okay you know at a certain time in history we need to we need to absolutely describe and encapsulate the sum total of the mystery of christ so that we can you know repeat it and then you know in that we repeat it out loud we can say that we believe it and then therefore we get to go to heaven or whatever um it's maybe a bit facetious but it's moving away from a conversation where it's like how are we describing absolute reality and instead saying how are we taking an event that happened back in history and an event that wasn't fully explained at, at least not in a total or comprehensive sense you know when you look at patterns of early church worship it's not that it's not that you have this full demarcation of what's going on it's like this thing happened somehow it means liberation for us somehow it means that death has been defeated there's something going on but it's not it's not fully parsed out and so the entire point of an, an atonement theory is as we enter into different historic and cultural contexts, we need language that makes sense of, but more than making sense, allows us to experience and step into the experience of this thing that took place before. And it was just really refreshing because, again, like rather than taking, like just taking a dump on penal substitution, he was asking the question, what was the context where this was genuinely meaningful? And if we still live and are a part of that context or insofar as we're still a part of a similar context it can still be a meaningful way to talk about um talk about the event of christ but then in insofar as that's not true insofar as we live in a different time we have um different experiences different different things that we're wrestling with perhaps we do need new language and maybe we draw from the earlier language of christus victor or we we draw from elements of ransom or recapitulation theory or, you know, the scapegoat theory of Girard, which in a lot of ways takes in elements of these various different theories and, and integrates them into this larger conception of, of liberation from the predatory structures of violence in the world. But the important element of that conversation is, is like the point of this theology is so that we can come into the experience of this mystery that isn't encapsulated by that, that summation description. So... Yeah, I, f I felt you on that. I was really excited when we started going in that direction. It's very, like, 
It, just as a, a side comment, I guess, it is funny how Canadian that is in a sense. Like he, him sitting there, we're talking about Canadian orthodoxy and whatnot. And that's not an unfamiliar way of using language, right? You hear all the time mm. people talking about how, you know, the U.S. may be more of a melting pot in some ways because a lot of the cultures clash. Brazil is often described as a melting pot. When I was down there, I heard people describe it that way. Whereas Canada is sort mm. of very careful, right? We're a mosaic. We're like a, a patchwork. We're like, a, right? Which, I mean... I sound like I'm mocking, but I'm not. I mean, it, it's funny, but it is language that's familiar to us. And mm. so to turn that around and then apply it to the way that we understand the history of the Christian faith, um, you know, like that's not something that should be ignored if we're talking about Canadian orthodoxy, right? Something like a mosaic or a patchwork or the meaningfulness of multiple ideas you can stitch together without obliterating any of them is a very, like, comfortable thing in, in a Canadian discussion, for example. So I, mm. I did, I was a little, I, I was fascinated by that, how very, like, Canadian that sounded, um, and yeah. how not foreign that sounded, right? Maybe in a sense that's what makes it somewhat refreshing, right? Is it's it's not so different from the sorts of things you hear about modern cultures living in a contemporary space. Why should mm. we treat our history, for example, differently? Um, yeah. Or theories, for example, why obliterate a theory as opposed to encountering it? Yeah, I, w I wonder too, and maybe this is just like where my, my head is at is, um, there's just something more interesting to me about asking the questions of, of why we would arrive at a certain articulation more so than, I don't know, the specific details of that articulation. So it's more interesting to me rather than than hashing through the mechanics of a particular atonement theory to talk about those things that make, you know, the metaphors, the the structures of language that are part of it, what makes that meaningful. Anyway, Doug, what about you? The thing that I found most compelling, I mean, as, as Tim and Chris know, um, listening to this sort of Girardian take on violence, uh, led me in like down the rabbit hole of perspectives of violence in regard to Christianity and the way that all kinds of people have interacted with it, the way that we're in a sense trapped in a cycle of violence, taking that seriously and sort of quote unquote, assuming it to be true temporarily mm. um, and kind of analyzing things in light of that. I found it to be a really fascinating pursuit. Um, but the thing that caught my eye most of all, I suppose is the idea of violence as a millennia-old failed experiment that Jeremy mm. Duncan touched on. Because um, mm. the way that he talked about it wasn't in this sort of derogatory, how dare anyone ever fall into it idea, because Girard never really had that idea either. It was this sort of idea that it was a natural part of life to stumble into. Yeah, or, in, or that like we have culture, we have society because of it. Like that's... It depends on it in some kind of a progression. Yeah. And I mean, just as as kind of an aside, I suppose, is it's very similar to how you see Maximus, uh, the confessor, talk about sin at times where it's kind of like it's this thing that you'd rather not exist, but it's a natural human experience to stumble into it. But the idea that Jeremy Duncan put forward is essentially that it's entirely natural to participate in violence, but it inevitably leads to the same result because that path has been trod endlessly. Quite literally for millennia, for thousands upon thousands of years, people have trod that path of violence and it leads the same place every time, right? If, if you take this meta narrative seriously, assuming there's a particular buy-in, right? 
So the Christian response is really interesting because the Christian response is to do the opposite, right? There's a certain, uh, he uses the phrase, a certain idealism and vulnerability to Christianity where it's not naivete. We're not sitting there going, if we embrace everyone and love everyone, that means that they will never harm us and they will love us and they will accept us no matter what. Because we assume and we know that we saw the opposite happen in Jesus. But instead, we choose to accept the possibility of pain. We choose to accept the possibility of suffering. And that is the sacrifice we intentionally make as the trade-off for choosing to be loving or choosing to participate in life, right? For choosing to participate in a different path than anything else, because um, kind of stepping into his, his concepts of mimesis, um, if we take seriously the sociology of mimesis that Girard puts forward, the thing that makes Christians unique is choosing to draw on the only example of perfect nonviolence in all of human history rather than every other example surrounding you, right? Mm-hmm. And so by choosing to do that, we are opening ourselves up to this, this pain, this suffering, this full acceptance of it, right? And our history is strewn with it. All, as well as times where we've been violent too. Let's not pretend that never happened, but we are also, we have also been on the receiving end of lots of violence. And there's a certain expectation that both Gerard and Jeremy Duncan put forward of, yeah, and we're going to keep doing it, right? It's it's kind of our responsibility not to stop. Mm-hmm. <laughs> um, and, and of course, this love has a, a particular nuance to it, right? But in terms of casting people out, that sort of final straw where that person no longer has a space to exist in our midst anymore, that's something that we we, we refuse actively. We choose to continue to love. Um, and the, the line that he used that I really liked was, we put ourselves on the line to point to something better. I found that idea really fascinating. And when you start to really look into the ways that sort of sin and violence can function as analogs for each other and whatnot, you can take that even further. But that's kind of the summary of what really leapt out at me Mm -hmm. is not to be appalled by the fact that violence exists, but instead to kind of look at it with understanding that there are people who choose to walk that path. But we know that it's failed. Right. We are fully aware that it's failed. It has never succeeded at anything other than a temporary false rallying of people. Right. At the cost of those who we can never reject as Christians. Hmm. Hmm. What was brought to mind, um, Doug, when you were talking was the kind of the pessimism and the optimism that Jeremy mentioned as being present within Gerard in the sense like the pessimism in that the scapegoat mechanism and the violence that's a part of that is an aspect of what it is to be human. And it's a part of the way that we construct a social order. So in a certain way, that pessimism is, is almost the inevitability of violence whenever humans organize themselves together in these kinds of large scale societies and spaces. At the same time, there's this interesting optimism in terms of what happens after the the death of the Christ. And so you have this, this moment within history where he says, and this ties into the idea of apocalypse, that the scapegoat mechanism gets unveiled in Jesus, and we can't go back to the time before that. It's been seen for what it is. And so then you have this optimism that, that comes to bear where he... 
I mean, Jeremy referred to the the metaphor of of the kingdom being like the mustard seed that's being being planted, and inevitably that tree is going to grow and it's going to provide shelter for the nations to come in. Um, and that's just that's interesting in terms of the the hope that's present in the refusal of violence. Starting with the the death of Jesus and the unveiling of the scapegoat mechanism, whenever that is imitated, you have that further iteration of the unveiling that becomes harder and harder to ignore. Um, so it is interesting that interplay between inevitability of what humans are going to do, but then also the possibilities that are mapped out or, or pushed forward from the event of the Christ. In terms of something that I found especially compelling, I think it was a reminder about the the model of how Gerard reads the scriptures. And, and that is a particular way to identify what is the revelation of God within it. Like this is gonna be something that we explore a little bit further in upcoming conversations with Brad Jerzak in particular. But the thing that I found really compelling was, especially as it pertained to our discussion around um, the revelation of John, was if you're asking the question, like, where is the truth of God disclosed? From a Girardian analysis, it's, it's not at the surface level. Like, you don't assume that the whole thing together is conveying this truth about who God is. Um, there's an acceptance that human mythology that the mechanisms of cultural creation are going to find their way into it in that this is a human book written um as understandable to the humans who are writing it and reading it at the time of its compilation and so what was really compelling is then rather than looking at it in its totality you look for the disclosure of god within the creative subversion you've got all these things where the elements and assumptions of culture are present you know the assumptions that god requires blood or that a scapegoat is required for us to be purified of our of, of our guilt or our shame or our sin. But instead of taking all of those things um, on the surface as they are and assuming, okay, this must be the disclosure of who God is, instead you look for the ways that that scripture, that narrative is subverting it. So, you know, you have the allowance of scapegoating and sacrifice as a mechanism that brings the Israelite community together, but then there's a limitation of that, and that in itself presents the subversion. Or you have that allowance, but then later on in the prophetic narratives, um, you have the statements, everything on, on the earth is mine, it already belongs to me, I don't demand sacrifice, I demand justice, and I demand mercy. Or then in the in the Revelation of John, you have images of warfare and uh, the armies of heaven overcoming the the armies of the dragon. But then the subversion comes when speaking about the weapons or the way that that is overcome is through the testimony of martyrdom, the testimony of nonviolence. When you really dig into the scriptures, you find the the tensions, you find the contradictions, you find the the humanity of it all. And so I do find the method that's presented in Gerard, with with some exceptions and with some limitations, because he's not a biblical scholar, um, and that's something that we mentioned a number of times within the conversation. But still, if we recognize that there is a presence of our humanity within this text that we're writing about the divine and with the uh, about the experience of the divine, it makes a lot of sense and is really compelling to me to assume then that where God is going to be disclosed is where our systems and where the reflections of ourselves become subverted. Um, and I just really appreciate engaging in that again. 
it's hard to it's hard to disagree with that um yeah. kind of necessarily i suppose like the absolute cynic in me wants to go like oh so you have a god of the like creative gaps um which <laughs> which we all know is not that at all right <laughs> yeah it's not what you're getting at at all um that's a, it's an interesting thought like it's I think the Girardian method is cool um, in that it's kind of setting up this whole kind of meta narrative. I think, I think when I first started listening to the interview that you guys did and uh, Jeremy kind of comes out right away and says like, Gerard is a big fan of meta narratives. So if you're like, if, if you're particularly disposed towards um, postmodernism, then you're not going to like really like him. And I went, okay, well, you know, I'll, I'll give him a chance. Like it, we'll, we'll see what happens. Um, yeah. and I started out being fine with it, but like, again, I don't have a PhD in this hell. I don't even have a master's. I'm not qualified to talk about this at the, like the, the depth that it would need to, in order to like actually be fashioned around what I'm, I think I'm about to say. Um, yeah. so like with a massive grain of salt, Jeremy Duncan is a much smarter man than I am who will definitely have a better answer. Of course, now I'm going to make some like grand statement about Gerard. Um, but, uh, <laughs> I, I, uh, I just, I have a real problem with the idea of trying to kind of shove it all into one kind of, one kind of narrative. And I know like there's really interesting readings of the Bible that, you know, you do the same thing with the Bible and that the Bible is all this one creative, beautiful meta narrative from the top, from top to bottom. Um, and this kind of like return to Eden idea. So like, yes, the idea of meta narrative within human literature exists. Great. Yeah. But I've, I think I have a problem with a sociologist assuming that that one particular narrative is true for all of human history and all of human culture and all of human language. Um, because I, I just don't see that as being necessarily possible um, or necessarily probable. Um, mm -hmm. I, I don't think that Gerard was immune from the times that he was in, um, nor immune from what he was, you know, experiencing. Like he was born in 23 and he died in like 2015 or something like that. Yeah. Um, which means that he was very much alive during this whole thing called the second world war, you know, or like the, the century of genocide as I think we ought to be like known for in like 200 years when they look back. So if he's kind of perpetually living in this world where it's like genocide after genocide and people group, you know, subjugating and, you know, quite, and then murdering an entire other people group, like I can very, I can honestly see a future scholar of all this looking back at Gerard and going, well, of course he would say all that. He was living at the time where everybody was getting genocided and there was a severe amount of scapegoatism that was happening perpetually, right? Like, <laughs> He was in his 20s when Hitler was saying everything he was saying about Jews and, you know, was on the cover of as man of the year on Time magazine. And like, you know, of course, he was dealing with these things when he was coming up with this idea or, you know, kind of fashioning what he was thinking around this idea. Um, so with that being said, I don't think that every society has been created because of this because of the scapegoat mechanism. Like, I think it's really beautiful to, or kind of fun to look back on the, uh, like, original sin as being like, oh, well, you know, it's, it's, it's entrance into this whole scapegoat mechanism. Mm -hmm. But I don't think it's that. Like, I have a hard time believing that the authors of Genesis 
were thinking that when they wrote it down, you know? So if we're going to be, if we're going to be postmodern and if we're going to look at everything within its own time and being able to talk about kind of the narrative movements between understandings of generations and cultures and societies and talk about how Christus Victor is really important at one time and how it lends itself to the formation of other things throughout history all the way up until penal substitutionary theory um, or penal substitution theory and, you know, even now a breaking wave that if we're going to be postmodern about it, then like, why don't we just be postmodern about it? And we can look back and we can say, well, yeah, this is a really cool idea or, you know, this is a fascinating idea. But like when we look at these core texts that are also talking about these things, we have to look at them like within their context as well. In which case, I think mm -hmm. Gerard doesn't necessarily break down. Like, I, I, I don't think that I don't think that Gerard breaks down here, but I, I, I don't think the core assumption um, accounts for all the beautiful hues within the tapestry of the, the painting that is humanity. Um, I think that it's kind of, I think it's looking at this one very, you know, oddly Europe-shaped part of the tapestry. Like, I think it's widely applicable. I, I think it's the temptation, especially living in a place like Canada, where we grew up with the kind of history that we did and studying the histories that we did, that we can say like, oh, yes, well, this, like this, this totally makes sense. But I mm -hmm. wonder if you were to bring this to somebody who was Cree. I wonder what their interpretation of this kind of Girardian scapegoat mechanism would be and what they would and how they would interpret that within their own understandings. Um, yeah. Because yeah. I think this is great for, yeah, like I said, this is great for people who look like Europeans, but I don't know if it's particularly effective at, any, at, at things that aren't necessarily European. And even then, I don't know if it's effective with everybody who's alive in Europe or who is European because Europe is also a vast array <laughs> of people. Right. And like, I don't know, can we say that about the Germanic people before the Romans got there? Like, or was scapegoat, was the scapegoat mechanism like put on them once they encountered, you know, Greco Roman society? Like, I don't know. Well, yeah. Yeah. To, to jump in for a second there, I, I actually had exactly the same criticism and there was something that I stumbled across this week that this is what you get when you stick two history majors in the same uh, conversation. <laughs> Meta narratives, how dare you? <laughs> <laughs> but but seriously, I mean, the funny thing was I'm I'm studying investing right now. And while I was sitting and, and doing a bit of that, there's this part of investing called technical analysis. And the goal of it is to try to figure out the way that stocks move. And I realized real quickly, um, as, as you're trying to figure out where something is going to move, a lot of people do these things where they draw a triangle and they try to gauge the way that something is going up and down and they try to see where it's going to break out of the end of the triangle. And there are people who joke about it all the time. You know, this is astrology for like day traders. This is this, this is that. And <laughs> the problem is when I look at meta narratives, it looks a little bit like that to me is mm. because the biggest problem that everyone says when it comes to technical analysis is you can start drawing, drawing the triangle wherever you want right? Literally wherever you want. You can just hop back, you can pick a random time and you can start drawing triangles and go, see, this is the direction that it's going. And they're like, oh, well, you only picked from like April 30th to now. And you're like, and that's a problem. Why? And they're like, because it's been going on longer. Well, how far back should I go? And this is the issue. I mean, let, let's go back. Let's say Adam and Eve. 
Okay, like in, because say, if we can say let, all let's of start by saying let's say that they're real, like two yeah. discrete people assuming, at a particular yeah. time. Let's assume yeah. literal biblical interpretation. Adam and Eve. Yep. No um, belly buttons. The, the whole works. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> they exist pre-development of the scapegoat mechanism in the sense of sacrifices in Israel, but they are still part of human history. So mm. where does the sacrificing start? Right. Um, well, we don't believe it exists till post-fall. Okay, sure, yeah, fine enough. So we start post-fall. Well, who's the sacrifice there? Well, there are people who would say, well, it's Eve, right? Because humans made the decision that they did, and God says, well, therefore, Eve will do, it will suffer these sorts of consequences, Adam will suffer these sorts of consequences, but ultimately, like, Adam will rule over Eve, essentially. But, I mean, that's assuming that what God's saying isn't predictive, that's assuming that it's prescriptive in the first place, which is only one interpretation. Um, and, and you can tell me you're a literal reader as much as you want, and you have no way of telling which one of those that is. Um, then you hop forward to Cain and Abel. Okay, well, do we start drawing the triangle here? Where's the sacrifice? Well, there are the things that they sacrifice to God, which God had never really told them to sacrifice per se. It doesn't say God ordered that. They just were sacrificing to God. Uh, do we start drawing the triangle there? Like, so th this is kind of the issue you run into is like, mm. where do you start drawing these triangles in, in history to make your meta narrative start fitting? And I think Girard is fascinating. I mean, later on, spoilers, uh, in other questions, I will say, I think he's incredibly important to conversation right now. I, I don't think that he's invalid by any means, but... Um, when it comes to the way that meta narratives operate, there is a certain level of sort of ham fisting things. And uh, I think it's a fascinating way to look at the cross. I think it's a fascinating way to address violence. I mean, it springboarded me into like a three month sort of study of, of various things in relation to him. But I think, I mean, I had to explain this to a few people. This is a reading of the Bible. Right. Mm -hmm. And a lot of people go, oh, so it's the way you read the Bible. And no, a reading of scripture is putting on a particular set of glasses, approaching the Bible and saying, in light of this particular approach to the world, how does the Bible speak? And I mean, almost everyone that I know from sort of conservative to liberal theology in the church will say that they believe that the Bible is some sort of living, breathing text or that God is living and breathing enough to make the text living and breathing. And mm -hmm. so as you sit and you interact with this thing, and whether it's tradition informing you or the Holy Spirit actively in that present, I'm not going to draw any lines here, maybe some other time, <laughs> but not here. <laughs> um, as you're doing that, um, you're looking at it from that angle. And I do think that angle is still valuable, but if you approach it with that meta narrative approach, you can end up squashing a lot of the way that the Bible is operating. Yeah. I mean, especially in relation to the risks of forcing the biblical authors to say things that, you know, they couldn't have meant to say in context. I can hear my thesis advisor saying, you know, you're allowed to hold this opinion relative to Paul, but that doesn't mean that Luke's saying the same thing as either of you. Maybe a point of clarification, though, like, I don't think that we have to be all or nothing with this. So like either Girard's analysis is the true interpretation of the scriptures or it should be done away with. I mean, definitely, we need to approach the scriptures on their own terms. 
with their own voice from within their own context. And, and we need to ensure that any analysis from the outside has to be properly understood in that way. But this doesn't negate the validity of certain readings as possible lenses to uncover certain things within the text that we may have overlooked otherwise. Even if those lenses may not account for the entire tapestry of the scriptures, and this is always tentative, I do think that even though there are limits to Girard's analysis, which you know we're gonna get into as we continue, I do still think that there's a lot to be gained from it, especially as it pertains to a critique of violence and victimization as a foundation for peace and the development of human community. Because this, this is something I think that can be found not just within the text itself, but also throughout the history of empire and large-scale civilization, including our own, not least as told through the culture war narrative that I think a lot of us inherited. And I mean, I started reading him. It was it was our, our dear friend Eric who first got me uh, reading Gerard. And so my first reaction was like, um, I just don't think that the the authors of the scripture are saying the things that he's he's quite free to kind of put in their mouths. And it took me a bit to kind of make that kind of separation where I'm not I'm not trying to say, does this explain or does this fully like flesh out the entirety of the scriptural text? Rather, is this a perspective that's worth my my listening to? And so the element that I find compelling is very simply, God being disclosed in subversion. Not God is always disclosed in subversion. God has to be disclosed in, in subversion. Rather, it's like, insofar as Gerard's assessment is true of the culture that I'm looking at when I'm reading reading the scriptural text, and insofar as it's probable that we're going to project our cultural location onto God, if those things being true and those things those things holding to or corresponding to what Gerard is pointing out, then I need to pay attention to the ways that those expectations that I see painted out are going to be flipped and subverted. And of course, I think this is really compelling in the way that Jeremy uses a Girardian lens in relation to something like Revelation. And it's a particularly good example where you have subversion of genre expectations in a really strong way. And it's interesting that this isn't something that Gerard himself applied. Gerard doesn't do an assessment of, of the book of Revelation. Um, and so it is, it's a very interesting and compelling case that Jeremy presents as a way of reading a text that historically has been extremely troubling. I mean, I could barely made it into the canon at the Council of Nicaea as it was. And then when you look at the usage of it within specifically 20th century North American theology in particular, um, I mean, with with some precedent earlier, but the extremely violent expectations and reading of it and the disturbing ways that that is and has been connected to particular political posturing and movements um, and not the least to do with um, the Israeli-Palestinian conflict. So maybe that that to, to bring clarification, because I'm, I'm not saying... Gerard, you are now the way that we read scripture. It's, I find the subversion present compelling as a perspective to bring into the reading of scripture, to bring to the surface things that we might be overlooking. When people asked about it, and there were a few people I talked with that were concerned about it, my response was, um, it's more that I'm disturbing the dust at the bottom of my default reading of scripture, and I'm seeing how things settle. 
And in terms of Girard, if I'm seeing a significant amount of violence that had actually settled at the bottom that I was perfectly comfortable with, I might mm -hmm. want to take a look at it as it settles down. Um, mm -hmm. It's not that I'm assuming that Girard is God in that he now determines the way that scripture is read, but I can make sure that significant amounts of violence in my Christian narrative aren't allowed to settle back down to the bottom and just sit there, you know? Mm -hmm. And I, I think that that's a meaningful way to describe it, right? You're you're sifting and you're analyzing, not in order to eisegete and to read culture into scripture and make scripture speak back to you whatever a 20th century philosopher wrote or a 21st century philosopher wrote or anything like that. But if we genuinely believe that Christianity is, once again, sort of what I, I talked about with the sort of multi-generational... Um, millennia's long discussion, then we don't believe that current culture is worthless any more than we believe biblical culture is worthless. And so what we're actually doing is we're saying, what is this a continuation of, or what are these thoughts in, in application to the Bible? Because if hypothetically they're true of humanity, then they are also mm -hmm. hypothetically true of the way that, Bi that the Bible is describing humanity. Right. Mm -hmm. um, we don't immediately write off somebody just because we didn't happen to read the Bible the way that they did. We stop mm -hmm. and we ask ourselves if it's possible to read the Bible this way. Is it worth paying attention to? There's a certain lending of, of credibility temporarily as you investigate mm -hmm. is more or yeah. less what, what we're really talking about. Anyway. Yeah. Well, well, I mean, unless he's American. Right. In which case we just, you know. I, toss I, that right good Canadian. Toss him like he deserves. Yeah. <laughs> okay. Well, no, when, he's part of our heritage. He's worth it. Like with all that being said, I, I think mm -hmm. that he's. I think he's going to be completely fascinating. I think what Jeremy Duncan's doing with him is is really great. I think, of course, you should use Gerard, particularly within the North American evangelical context, to try to break free of those things and use him as some kind of like theological sieve, like Doug was talking about. Um, mm -hmm. rather than kicking up everything, you know, trying to catch all the big bits of like of war and genocide and violence in there. And we can toss that out of our Christianity, right? Um, if that's an appropriate analog at all. Um, but uh, <laughs> I, I think I, I think historians will look could look back on Gerard and go, okay, so this is like this is a really great, interesting reading of uh, 20th century modernist being applied to new 21st century models of understanding, particularly within Christianity, right? Because like historians 500 years from now, are not going to see us as being different from Gerard, right? Like, heck we were like, we were grew up when he was still like very much alive. Um, yeah. In a, you know, newly interconnected world. And they're going to, you know, see how these things work. So they'll talk about us the same way that we were talking about Christus Victor and, you know, penal substitution and even Whig historiography. Um, and God, I need to stop doing like these bad deep cuts that are like all like very specific <laughs> to history. I mean, I'm thoroughly <laughs> enjoying it. Of you. <laughs> yeah, but nobody's gonna get them. That's that's a stupid thing for me to do. Okay, so let me just fill everybody with what weak historiography is before we move on. No, no, people can look that up themselves. I guess yes. <laughs> Google is your friend in this podcast. That's all I have to say. <laughs> well, at at this point, since we've since we've already moved into nuance and critiques, 
Chris, we'll get you to start out because you mentioned temporality first. Uh, why don't we talk about that a little bit? Yes, temporality. <laughs> um, I think what's really interesting about the kind of postmodern turn that we find ourselves heading into, particularly within the Christian context, is the opening up of the ability to think outside of the context that we're a part of. Um, mm. And I, I think this is extraordinarily formative. I mean, hilariously, I don't think you could have looked at somebody in 1930 or whatever and gone like, hey, by the way, this thing called the postmodern turn is about to happen. And like the first church group that's going to pop onto this thing is going to be the Catholics. Like, and they're going to be the ones who are going to start thinking outside of themselves and, you know, trying to figure out how to, like, reform themselves so they can, like, come to cohesion with the rest of the world and, like, figure out what the science thing means. And, like, you know, like, yeah, it's the Catholic Church is going to be the, the really progressive ones in all of this over the next, like, 100 years. And they will look at you and they go, what? And I don't care, like, what society you're in. They would all go, like, excuse me. <laughs> like, that doesn't make any sense. Um, but... Uh, but like it happens, and we have you know John the twenty, John the Pope John the twenty third's writings, and we have the encyclicals, and we have John Paul the second, and like heck, we have like we have Pope Pius and Leo before them, who are also writing these these incredible letters, which are you know notating what we know as Catholic social theory. Um, mm -hmm. But I I think what's actually probably the most amazing about it is that like this postmodern thing probably has the most potential to reform and to actually have like the most power over people who are Protestant and particularly evangelical. Um, because whereas the Catholic church got to be insular, um, they were only really insular as far as you, once you had holy orders, it was insular. Like the society still existed around them. Like people still murdered and went to church. Right. Um, yeah. <laughs> I think with the most extreme example, um, but like, you, you know, people were still going to live their lives and then church happened and sure it was in Latin. Yeah, whatever. But like, you know, there was still the church in very distinct cultures. And this was the same with the Orthodox, of course, um, um, with, I, I think, the kind of hilarious exception, a little bit of, of the Greek Orthodox Church of which, you know, priests in the Greek Orthodox Church are still, you know, are still almost like a part of the job description is being able to sign legal documents for the, like the country of Greece. Um, which I, yeah, I still think is incredible. Um, but, uh, but church, like, you know, life happened and then church life was also happening. These things were happening, but like all the Protestant groups that came over to North America, especially had to be insular within themselves because they were all escaping whatever, you know, from, you know, previous countries, like, they were all coming mm -hmm. over here, you know, running away from persecution. So they were insular, right? Um, or they were running away from, you know, some other horrible thing. So they were insular because they only spoke the languages of people that were coming over. So like all these kind of little groups and pockets formed. And lo and behold, everybody who was, you know, who was Baptist wanted to only talk to Baptists because, you know, that kind of insulation grows. No better example of this than, of course, the amazing hit movie from 2007 i think there will be blood which Ooh, turn yes. this off go watch that um then come back this is a deep cut you can't just google so here we are um welcome back um so this is why post postmodernism has the most ability to change those groups because they actually have to think outside of themselves 
and they can think mm-hmm. outside themselves. Whereas the rest of Catholicism dealt with this you know, in the sixties um, at the very latest and the rest of, you know, Orthodoxy has been dealing with this perpetually for, for, you know, since its inception. Like there were these things called the church councils. I don't know if you've heard of them. And, you know, they were talking with people across the world from them. Like the Christological controversies were a thing and they had to deal with that. And admittedly, they didn't handle it well, but that's been a part of, that's been a part of, of the narrative within Christianity for that entire time. And what's important to know is that everything that happened within those Christological controversies is also the inheritance of every other Christian that's alive. And I think that's what's so cool about this whole temporality thing is that evangelicals now have the opportunity to look beyond their own history and look at the history of all of the Christian church and being able to apply it to themselves. Um, But it's, it's important to note that I think this temporality thing goes beyond just that. Think about politics now. And my biggest, you know, kind of a problem with it is that people are looking at it as like this kind of stupid two-dimensional spectrum. Like you're only left or you're right wing. Like there's apparently nothing else than that, right? But like the trouble is that thing moves around all the time. And you know, are the Republicans really right wing? Are the Democrats really left wing? Or are they both right wing? Or are they both left wing? Who could know? Um, and you start kind of seeing these people come in and go, "Oh, well, it's actually this three dimensional thing." And we kind of we need to look at a few other things. And you go, "Yeah, okay, that's 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 great." But mm-hmm. it also shifts very much within time and how time moves. This whole spectrum moves with it. It's not this three dimensional grid. It's like a four dimensional tesseract that's constantly interacting with itself, right? And I, I think that. I think we actually have no idea what time is. <laughs> um, like, I, I think, I, I don't think we actually have a, like a good, I think we have a grasp of what causality means in the universe. And again, I'm a history major, so I have absolutely no idea what I'm about to talk about, but you know, hear me out on this one. Um, that I don't think science has figured out all these things about causality yet. And I don't think they figured out what we mean by general relativity quite yet. I think Einstein had good things. And I'm just dealing with pop science right now. So again, I don't know what I'm talking about. I'm really willing to believe everything that these great physicists and scientists are saying right now. And I, and I do, I just, I think any good scientist worth their ilk would say like, yeah, of course we don't have it all figured out. Like it's science, but like, duh, like we don't, of course we don't have it figured out. Like we're never going to have it all figured out. We can never be certain of anything. Um, and if that's the case, I think this temporality thing is going to throw a huge wrench into a lot of these interpretations of how things work within the world. Like I remember when Jeremy was talking in that interview and he said like, you know, God for the first time experiencing things, which I think Mm -hmm. is like, is nice. I I think that's a like really lovely concept. And I I think if I had a child, I would really like to think in terms of, I would like, I would like to use that kind of narrative and that kind of analog for myself to think in terms of what God is, was feeling in those moments. And and to try to understand God's position within the cosmos within those. But mm-hmm. I think I'm willing to believe that whatever those feelings or emotions and everything were, that God is sufficiently outside of time enough that that kind of is always happening or not always happening. And that kind of temporal kind of strain on that, or that, you know, four dimensional test rack, if indeed it is only four dimensions, um, that, kind of that God is perpetually living within that while perpetually living within, you know, the cosmos in the way that our causality currently, our understanding of causality as humans, you know, 
exists. Um, now, of course, this could all be bullshit and you're more well, more than welcome to cut it from this entire thing. But I think, <laughs> I, 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 please do if it doesn't work. <laughs> yeah. Tim's like, can Will fully intend to? Please proceed. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, I'm loving this. I'm, I'm down with all of it. Um, I, I think that... Uh, <laughs> I think that the idea of time and I'm not just saying this as somebody who likes history. I think the idea of time is in it is just completely locked into the idea of interpretation and the idea of, um, of, of reading and, and writing and you know, thinking. Um, and as important as that is, I think this doesn't just contribute to our own bias. I think this contributes to the way that like the human organism, you know, develops these thoughts around these things. I think for an extraordinarily young species, like mm. just right off the bat. So I, I think, I think part of the problem with this Girardian reading, whenever I was re whenever I was hearing it um, as well, was that this is all well and good, but like, what about homo, what about uh, Neanderthals, right? Mm. Oh, it's all the other human species that were around during the same time as humans developing. Um, yeah. And where does this fit into, like, they are human species. Where does this develop, where does this fit into to them as well? And, and can we eliminate them from the temporal idea of salvation? And is salvation yeah. temporal? within all of that so i don't know these are questions which are i think far beyond the reach of literally anybody right now um i don't think you're gonna be able to find them in any book patristic or not um but it is a, a ponderance which i think is worth i think is worth thinking about particularly in this postmodern age An interesting thing, though, is that, like, what this was early in the conversation because there was some reference to um, more so Girard as the anthropologist um, rather than Girard later stumbling into theology that was brought up in, in my conversation with Jeremy with regards to how Girard would see the creation of the scapegoat mechanism specifically so mimesis already being a part of how we learn as you know humans but probably more broadly speaking as mammals anyways that we we see something we imitate it and we're able to track desire um or we inform our desire relative to what we see the people around us doing and that's the thing that allows us to to develop as humans relative to those who have come before us but then gerard would also and i think jeremy used the words um you know, akin to the discovery of fire, like the discovery of the scapegoat mechanism is the thing that allows um, culture to form. And in Gerard's analysis, it's it's the capacity to create a scapegoat mechanism and be able to defer violence one to another and point that onto an external entity that allows us to be able to, you know, resolve our conflict and competition one to another that allows society and the species to actually be able to form and gather into groups longer than a couple couple thousand. So the interesting thing is that like in a certain way it's brought up by Gerard, but this is a question that I have also, you know, relative to the biblical story as well, which is like if you're going to have a specific moment where this happens that it marks the beginning of something new at what point does that start and when does that how is that caused 
um, when do these things begin to emerge? And I suppose this is the difficulty of like talking about anything. Like how can you talk about the, you know, the point that English, the language of um, that we speak now as Canadian English, when did that happen? Because it's not that this like moment in history discrete, like all of a sudden a bunch of people decided to use the words that we're currently using now. You know, it's really difficult or, you know, maybe even impossible to, you know, try to look for a distinct discrete moment where, you know, the Frisian dialect breaks off from earlier West Germanic and all of the various interactions and and moments within the evolutionary chain of the language that bring us up to the point where we are today here in our particular context. Um, I'm not a linguist, so if I go too far into this, I'm just gonna start saying things that are uh, <laughs> meaningless terms. But what I do think is that what Chris is pointing out in terms of um, temporality and that, that, that problem where you don't have neat lines of causation, but you also don't have discrete moments of emergence. And when we understand, I guess the more that we're, our perception of our cosmology now is changing in the light of, you know, discoveries that began or theories that began or were put forward by Einstein. But we're we're in a post relativity world. We're in a we're in a world where quantum theory is a thing. And um there's kind of this you know, whether we talk about um, the emergence of complexity within biological systems, or we think about that on the full scale of the universe, or in terms of um, physical systems, etc. Like, we recognize that that kind of evolutionary and emergent development is just a part of the way that the world appears to work and operate. And so then when you start to talk about those overarching narratives that we use and the stories that we tell to make sense of the world that we inhabit, it really starts to become difficult and that, you know, what Chris was mentioning earlier in terms of like how far can meta narratives go to be true assessments of our reality, um, it really, things really start to get, get fairly tense. And one aspect that came to mind um, when I was thinking about this question of, you know, different things that we would want to nuance or push back on or, or critique, I think has to do with the concept of original sin that Gerard points out and how that might be able to be mapped onto a Genesis narrative as somewhat related to an actual historical process. And I guess one of the difficulties here is being able to parse out um, Gerard's analysis relative to history compared to the analysis, or I guess the literary analysis of the scripture, because I think those those ought to be held as, as two different things. Um, but with regards to say, you know, what is the way that we interpret the Genesis narrative? And there was a lot of, you know, I really had, I, I had fun with that aspect of the conversation with Jeremy, because what's really cool when you're talking about something like the Genesis story, and I guess the way that it's situated within the um, the whole tapestry of, of scripture is that it, it functions as an organizing story that helps to inform the cycles and the patterns that follow. And it creates a lot of like really interesting possibilities with the way that you read it. Um, you know, you could take that, if you're purely looking at the Hebrew scriptures, you can take the Genesis story as the proto-organizing narrative of um, the exile cycle. And so you have... Um, you know, you have the giving of a law within a promised land, and then you have the failure to uphold that 
you know, covenantal structure and agreement. And so then you have expulsion and that if you, I mean, I don't want to get too far into the background on this, but when we look at the historic development of the scriptures themselves, that event of the Israelite exile is the event in history that really drives the compilation of the scriptures, period. And so that story is a really, really helpful one to give a logic for the things that are going to follow, whether historical or not. It's it's kind of difficult to tell when you're parsing out an ancient text like the scriptures. But then... In the same way, if you have the the exile as this central event within the history of Israel that comes to be um, a part of those overarching stories that they tell about their identity, it becomes really interesting when you look at the New Testament context as well as, and the kind of unique ways that if the new central organizing event is the reconciliation that is able to be accomplished through Christ and the unique disclosure of God in the Incarnation, from that vantage point, you start to get really, really interesting ways of reading or thinking about the Genesis story and, you know, talking about um, original sin in terms of the grasping of a corrupted image of God or a distorted image of God, you know, God as the will to power and that being the object of our mimesis. And um, yeah, there's there's really interesting ways that you can, you can go about that. I think where you start to run into um, a lot of difficulties where nuance or critique is really necessary is, you know, it's possible to go too far. And one thing that was mentioned um, by uh, Jeremy referring to um, some of the directions that early Jewish interpreters went with regards to the Genesis story is, you know, talking about it in terms of this event that's necessary for the development of humanity in order to bring them to the next, you know, the next segment of the story that eventually is going to reach its culmination in Christ. But you need to have this, you know, the introduction in a, from a Girardian perspective, the introduction of the scapegoat mechanism to allow humanity to reach this new point in its development that then allows the liberation from that thing. You know, God gives the sin of scapegoating that would move the story forward, that would allow us to one day be freed from it. And I don't want to push this too far because I know that Jeremy isn't reading the Genesis story as like this literal event that happened. And I would be extremely surprised if that was the case in Gerard. But this does raise an instance where it becomes potentially deeply problematic because if the entire point of Gerard is, is that he's attempting to give a lens of analysis of the development of human society, but then also the liberation from that within the Christian story and the liberation from systems of violence towards a new way of peace. If that's true, it becomes really problematic if that event depends upon violence as a historical necessity. If you're using this, this analysis, then like God appears to need violence to move his story forward and it's only then history becomes meaningful only in terms of a drama that god wants to play out and then you start to get into those like really weird metaphors of like history as a stage play and all of the existence of all things as just something that god is doing for his entertainment or because that's how compelling stories work and this is where it really becomes highlighted that if it's not so easy or maybe it's too easy to try to lump in our understanding of the experience of existence in this particular universe with the kind of literary structures that we happen to find compelling. And that can become really disturbing when mapped upon God as though the, you know, the force of historical necessity is relative to what we happen to find compelling as a story. Um, 
yeah, there's a lot in that. And that's a little bit messy in my thought. But it is it is one of these points where I, I think meta narrative analysis starts to have limitation once we try to map it onto an actual historic process. And I think uniquely at the starting point of that historic process. Actually, it's interesting you say that because I actually found it to be the opposite. I didn't start at Genesis when I was thinking about this, but one of the critiques that I wrote down as I was listening is, from a Girardian perspective, the cross creates its own problem that it then solves, if you're reading mm. from a purely Girardian angle. Because essentially mm. what you're saying is... Um, we want, like, uh, assuming, again, assuming the Girardian reading, we want to end up with a nonviolent God, assuming that if we read from a Girardian angle, God is nonviolent. Okay, mm -hmm. that's fine. We're giving benefit of the doubt. We start there. I started right at the cross. I didn't start back in Genesis. I said, let's work backward from the cross and see from there. But the problem is the cross pre creates its own problem because you end up with the issue of, well, why is God doing violence to his son? Like, this is kind of messing with uh with the order of the questions i suppose but one of the things that jeremy duncan brings up is that one of the the greatest things that gerard addresses is that modern questions that the church will be facing one of the most significant modern questions will be um how do we reconcile a nonviolent god with the violence of the cross mm -hmm. and so you start at the cross and you go well jesus was a scapegoat for all of humankind's violence temporarily in order to unveil that. And you go, oh, cool. Why'd God, like, do that? You know, he took himself and he was like, cool, I'd like to be the, the perfect God-man in the space of total abuse, participating in this thing that humans have been doing all the time, when I have literally any other option to shine a light on it, Right. So I'm, I'm going to actively choose to participate in the violence in order to do that, which is fine. That doesn't break Girard per se, but it's really hard to say, well, in light of that, we have a nonviolent God because don't worry, it was the humans that set up the violence. And then mm -hmm. I worked backward and I reached exactly where you were. Okay, but that means right from the inception of the universe, God has to have known that they would play out this particular way or he would know that it's happening as it's playing out, depending on what sort of thing you ascribe to. Either way, you go all the way back to Genesis and you go, oh, so in a sense, this like this sort of had to be facilitated so that it could play out on the cross. And God decided that instead of any nonviolent way that he could stand in the way of this, he chose the violent way. And he let the people then do violence to things and participate in it, right? Which, sure, you can you can stumble into the problem of of um, human autonomy and and etc. But it's still like if we have an all powerful omni 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 god, as one of my old teachers liked to put it, uh, then why did why was God like the solution to this is per to participate in the cycle of violence? That way, I can shine a light on the problem with the cycle of violence, right? I mean, that that's, like you said, Tim, essentially you end up with a kind of all the world's a stage issue where, well, the center point of all of existence is the cross. Say, if you take C.S. Lewis's reading seriously, for example, and a, a lot of evangelical readings, in all fairness. Um, mm -hmm. Okay, so then, you know, essentially God said, well, that's got to happen. So how do I make sure that I can fit this 
cycle of violence to reach the point where this will inevitably happen. Like there's there's almost this devious mastermind sort of thing if you read it too hard into Girard's mm-hmm. reading. And you really have to remember this entire time that Girard is a sociologist. He's a brilliant sociologist. He has fantastic ideas that are deeply, deeply significant to the church, but he is still a sociologist. And the same way that I wouldn't claim to be able to analyze sociology and and modern critical theory, for example, on a doctorate level, um, he's not a biblical scholar and he's not a historian. And so there are still blind spots, inevitably, right, where you, you do your best to talk about these things, but the same way that somebody hopped on the podcast and they had more passing knowledge of history, they'd be like, wow, that Doug guy's a total idiot. Um, we can look at Girard and we can be like, well, there are still blind spots here. And that's a pretty big one from what I can tell, whether you work it forward or backward, as as you've just pointed out, right? It's interesting that you point to the conflict within the cross itself, because, you know, I would argue that this is the nonviolent option and that you know, in locating Girard's analysis onto the cross, it provides a way, I think, to see God's participation in this event as being an identification or becoming the victim of collective violence rather than its its perpetrator. He's providing the solution to the problem of God inflicting violence upon the son, that this is the way out of that given perspective? It works that he provides that solution, but if you are providing a solution to a problem that you yourself created accidentally in the way that you designed your narrative, mm. then it's harder to take seriously. Because if if you he was addressing... Yeah, if he was addressing only the problem that we already have, right? Like if he was trying to say we have a really violent God... Um, if you read scriptures perfectly literally. And so we need to understand this in light of this meta narrative, that wouldn't be a problem to me. Right. Um, I could give him benefit of the doubt. I could say at the, at the end of this meta narrative, you kind of resolve the issue that we already had. Continuing through, because um, we'll have sat on this section for a long time. But I guess moving on to the to the next question here, I'm interested in hearing some of the things that you you heard from the conversation that you'd be interested in either exploring further or or fleshing out a bit more. I mean, I'll hop on that. I I really liked there. All I wrote from this was a, a single sentence quote from him that I really enjoyed, and, and I think fleshing it out would take quite a while but the idea of i don't think the descriptions of love that would be any less than a child would ascribe to are useful anymore Mm. he said that phrase and he said it in regard to the way that modern christians particularly younger christians as they look at the history of faith are looking at the bible are looking at the christian narrative Oh my goodness, like you could unpack that for forever. You could fight about it. You could come to blows about it if you wanted there. I probably know people who would like it's that's a really difficult sentence to grapple with. Um, Mm -hmm. Because I mean, part of me, there's that part of me that immediately leaps to the let the little children come to me, the faith of a child, the all these narratives in the Bible that 
had really obvious nuance. Like, I mean, if you take that sentence seriously, for example, then all of the uppercase O Orthodox Church's answers that are just, it's honestly a mystery that's beyond us, just sound like this sort of desperate attempt to wiggle out of reality when in reality a child should be able to understand you shouldn't they right like mm. it's this this really difficult tension um mm. and i mean my first thought is well are you talking about it only in regard to love right we can still look at the cross and say whatever happened here is a mystery and we'll be explaining it till the end of time mm. but in terms of love we shouldn't hesitate to talk about the fact that that is something that at least imperfectly is is like shadowed in human experience. But mm -hmm. the problem with that, of course, is I'm one of those people who believes that love is something that's nigh impossible to adequately describe because I, I kind of, I immediately think back to sort of monastic leanings and the just total strange reversal that you see in them where they are these incredibly harsh people who talk about cutting off limbs and hiding yourself from reality in order to encounter God. And these same people have some of the just absolute most gentle stories of the way that they treated people, like absolutely astounding stories of this gentleness and kindness in the face of total violence and abuse. Mm. So I, I find it really hard to think of love that way, right? Like, when you think of love, would would a child think of somebody who would go and die on a frozen lake with a bunch of other Christians because he loves them and God so much? I mean, that's not something you'd sit a child down and go, okay, look, little Sally, right? Speak for yourself, man. We got a feast day happens every year, and the sure we every year we have Sunday school on that day, and every year the priest tells that story to the kids. In front of the, front of the <laughs> congregation. See, God speak for yourself. Oh my goodness. Because like, I mean, that's not common. And I mean, unless you teach a kid, this is the thing, unless you teach a child to associate that with love, their gut reaction is not, oh, that's love, right? Um, I don't know. Well, so there's, there's... I don't know. It might be though, like in the sense that like, I think there is this assumption that like love involves the willingness to take someone or take something on another person's behalf or at least to identify with them. So it's like, I mean, maybe it, maybe a child would identify with like, okay, if, if something's going to be taken away from you, then if I really, really love you, I'm, I'm, I'm not willing to have the thing that's been taken away from you. And so I think like that could give a basis specific to understanding willingness to be martyred or to stand in the way of, you know, stand in the way of death for another person, that that makes sense in, in love. I think like relative to what Jeremy was identifying that with, in specifically connecting that to what we understand of God, I think that's when it becomes like especially compelling. Well, and I think a, a particular outworking of that and something that I really, really appreciate with the community that uh, Jeremy has has fostered along with the leadership team at, at Kensington Commons is, you know, at a very base level that in order to be accepted by God, you don't need to scapegoat your lesbian daughter, like just on a very basic and a very visceral level. And that that's an expression of what it is or an aspect or a dimension of what it is to live in the abundant love of God. And in, in that way, it's like, 
yeah, love is a mystery. Love isn't something that we can define, um, you know, maybe conceptually, but even if we could define it conceptually, any of that would be meaningless if it can't be understood in terms of example, in terms of a lived example. And so if it makes sense that it's like, no, it's not loving to exclude this particular person from community with me because of, of whatever reason, or that I'm going to say like, you know, this aspect of you needs to change before I can allow myself to be in your presence. That seems, yeah, that's just seems obvious as, um, as a, as a violation of what we would assume love to be. Yeah. And his reflexiveness in regard to that is really helpful too, because while that is very blatantly to, to anyone with any familiarity with the way that the church has approached this over the years, particularly, I mean, I'm more familiar again with the evangelical church. What I've seen in the evangelical church is that that is a definitively considered a liberal reading of the Bible and a liberal understanding of love in regard to mm. theology, not politics, at, but at least theology, right? And mm. uh, the reflexiveness that was immediately there where he was talking out, you know, you can see this particularly on the left where they try to care about these people. And then in order to do that, they talk about how they hate people who treat those people badly. Mm. And they, they turn around the scapegoat. And so I, I mean, immediately after that sort of phrase and talking about this a little bit, there's this immediate reflexiveness of, you know, and he says, you know, somebody with a more conservative reading of the Bible than you and casting them out of your church, right? That that's yeah. an abominable yeah. thing to do, that an actually unacceptable thing to do because, you know, there's no ultimate rejection of anyone. I think he never uses those words, but that was kind of the sense that I got of, well, while you can reject ideas and you can reject things, um, the idea of rejecting the person themselves is the thing that's that's utterly abominable to to love like and love is in both capital l and and lowercase l like it's not loving to behave but it's also abominable to god himself right who refused to ever in totality reject someone either right um i mean i guess depending on how calvinist you are there are certain arguments to be made the other way but uh <laughs> i mean my personal reading is that there is never a totality of rejection to a person, right? Um, at least not within this life. You can, you can make all kinds of arguments about hell being eternal and whatnot, but within this life, there was no utter finality of rejection by Jesus of anyone. Mm -hmm. And so to do that to anyone for any reason, um, again, liberal, conservative, uh, gay, uh, different race, what, what have you, like that's mm -hmm. considered a truly unacceptable thing. And mm -hmm. I understand his relating of a, a child understanding love in that particular way. With, with all of that in perspective, um, what we're just stumbling across now is Maximus and Athanasius. Um, <laughs> because, <laughs> yeah, <laughs> like it's hilariously, here we are. Um, <laughs> Uh, we're exploring Canadian Orthodoxy, and oh my God, Maximus and Athanasius pop up again. Um, but um, Maximus spends 400 chapters um, writing and trying to parse out what the idea of love even is, and he's going through each of the different Gospels and trying to determine what the true definition and true expression of absolute love within Christian within Christianity is. Um, 
and it takes him those 400 chapters and he still doesn't even get it, right? And this is one of the, like, the foremost geniuses of Christian writing ever. But you can tell, as one of my very good friends once said, that like Maximus, when you're reading Maximus, you can tell that he's, he's one of these people who's just on the brink of something. And he just mm. knows that he's, he's just so close to figuring something really important out, but he just has to write it all down. And, and, he, and from that, he'll, he'll manage to put it all together. And you can feel that kind of earnestness when he's talking about love and how it all works together. And he deals with all of this in the first 200 chapters, mind you, um, he deals with all of this and makes some pretty definitive statements about like what love is, but so does Basil and so does mm-hmm. Athanasius, right? Yeah. I, I think that's the whole thing about what you were talking about with um, the importance of the cross and trying to figure out that problem is that, well, like, I don't know, why don't we just read on the incarnation? Because I mean, this sorted that out um, pretty definitively in, in a way that, that I think makes a lot more sense than Girard. Um, in terms of things that I would have liked to see more flushed out then would have been Girard's, I don't know if it's so much flushed out, but I would have really liked to see, you know, kind of where Girard's um, kind of approaches intersect and, and overlap with some of these really great Christian thinkers. So again, we're getting to this whole temporality thing. Well, but I think like this, also, maybe if I identified as as Eastern Orthodox, I'd be a little less hesitant to describe the writings of fourth century church fathers as definitive. Because I don't know, like they're using language relative to their time to issues that they're specifically experiencing. So I don't know, I'd, I'd want to be tentative, even though like I do agree that these are fundamental voices to be engaging with. And maybe this is where I think taking Girard as a perspective that reminds us or might push us to look at what already exists within our tradition in a different way. That's really, really cool. And that's really, really interesting. Like, yeah, what would a Girardian reading of Athanasius look like? Um, Oh, I'll I'll quickly mention um, just something that... um, I'd be interested in exploring further then before we can we can jump into uh, the final question and then we can give Doug the floor on that one. Um, for those of you who haven't been on the and won't see the video feed of this because we're doing an audio only podcast for the past little bit when Chris and I've been making comments, then Doug has just been typing like stealing my thunder and, and things like that into the comment section if there's any question there. <laughs> I I do think one thing before we move on um, that I'd be really, really interested in exploring was in a certain way, this was a one-off phrase that uh, Jeremy Duncan used. Um, But then this was also connected to this larger framework of, I think, responding to and confronting, um, confronting evil and confronting violence in the way that we do that. And the line that he used was bringing Satan into our midst or welcoming Satan or allowing Satan to enter into our midst, which is really, really fascinating. For one, because it's hard to break out of the um, assumption of Satan as this, you know, literal entity who lives down below somewhere, somehow or another. And so even as like that theology gets more developed and broadened i think like even just in the reading of scripture and you 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 come into contact with the kind of 
ambiguity of the Satan character within the text. But it, it is this like really like, I, I like the way that that phrase works to cause us to stop and ask, wait, like, what are you saying? Where does this go? Um, because if we're welcoming the Satan in, Satan as something opposed, rather than, you know, strictly speaking, this particular, you know, non-physical entity. And it's a really interesting concept to force us to ask the question, like, if Satan is a moniker under which violence and discord or conflict and opposition are organized, then it's worth asking the question, if I'm going to respond to this, how do I refuse to play the game or play into that power? How do you refuse to um, act into the narrative that violence is a historical necessity or that this is the way that we move forward and that when we encounter opposition, the thing that we need to do is overcome it through force, um, you know, whether by imposing our order or whether by enacting this violent you know, overthrow of it. And that's just really fascinating. It's something that I want to think about a lot more because this can relate to properly understood, like the satanic structures that exploit and oppress in the world, the principalities and powers in the language of Paul. But it can also be related, as, as Jeremy was mentioning, to those things that we falsely name as Satan. The things that stand in opposition to the structures and authorities and, and stories that we're a part of. In our conversation, he related this to the victims who brought forward accusations against Ravi, which were initially written off as like, you know, this evil opposition, as slanderers or, you know, doing the work of Satan to discredit the ministry. Even though if the so-called Satan or accuser had been allowed in rather than combated and gaslighted and, and written off, this could have represented salvation in terms of the revelation of the abuse that was in fact taking place. But I think this is also very relevant to our current political context in Canada, as the dominant culture is being forced to reckon with our history of colonial violence and white supremacy. A history that, you know, it, it delegitimizes the image of tolerance and equity that we would want to have for ourselves, as well as this nostalgic narrative of a Christian past or being a Christian nation that we ought to return to. The language of welcoming the Satan or the one opposed into our midst, say in the testimony of First Nations communities, you know, rather than reacting with forceful defensiveness as if this were Satan, rather than reacting with forceful defensiveness, opens up the space for truth and justice on their behalf. But it may also represent the deliverance out of the actually satanic systems of oppression that we ourselves are often ignorant of. So I find that language fascinating as a confrontation and as a check against defensive violence in response to perceived threats. You know, an alternative invitation to the way of peace especially when connected to this Girardian refusal to scapegoat on either side of the political landscape that we find ourselves in. That also, just to, to interject really quickly there, that also connects really well to what we were talking about before with the idea of that uh, sort of innocence. Again, not naivete, but that sort of um, optimism towards life, optimism towards the capacity to work with things. It's not that I will look at violence in a positive light, but I will look even at the people who are violent, uh, including myself, 
and say, is there anything that God doesn't believe is worth redeeming in the essence of this person, right? In the essence of this creation, is that is it not worth redeeming? And mm-hmm. I mean, it, again, it, speaking about politics, left to right, everyone believes that there's something in all of creation that's worth redeeming, uh, whether you read the Bible perfectly literally or perfectly as a metaphor, um, and anything in between. There is this idea that creation will be in some way rejuvenated, in some way regenerated, and that it is worth saving and, and recreating and whatnot. And mm-hmm. so the optimism that we can have is, you know, if you sit down with somebody who is obsessed with violence, I mean, I remember having a conversation with somebody just a, a couple weeks ago for a personal anecdote who said, well, the way that we fix sort of the difficulties in this nation is we line up all the liberals and we kill them. And he said that to me, and I said, well, I mean, he didn't know me very well. And I said, you know, the only issue that I could see with that is that... Uh, other than that, you'd be shooting me. Uh, other than that you'd... Well, I mean, relatively, but again, this is this is where you bring the temporality into play. I said, well, I have, you know, some health issues that I'm dealing with, and there are certain issues where I would come out as liberal certain issues where I'd come out as conservative and then how I'd come out on that spectrum you're insisting on depends on whether you stick me here or you plonk me down somewhere in Europe. My political views would be all over the spectrum in some of those places. You know, if you stuck me in Nova Scotia, I'd probably be a conservative. Like, right. But it, it just depends on the way on, on where you are, the experiences that you've had. And, and I, I could have just reacted in an angry way. And there was that temptation to just kind of be like, Oh yeah, sure. Line me up, shoot me in the head. Right. And you have mm-hmm. to you have to kind of catch yourself and go like if I believe that there's a certain level of analogy uh, an analogous um, similarity between Satan and violence you know the father of all lies the father of all violence yada 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 what this person mm-hmm. is essentially spouting is ideas that are the antithesis of everything that it is that I'm supposed to embody as a Christian and they are a Christian too. Um, so the way that I deal with that is to look at them and try to bring up nuance, to try to bring up care and love in the midst of all of these things, not to explode, not to curse them, not to whatever, but just to say, I think there's a depth here that you're missing and hopefully they can walk away, not spouting things that are the antithesis of everything we're both supposed to be living for on the other end. And of course, there's that fine line. Where's the point where you do draw a hard line? You know, um, mm-hmm. it'd be a very different situation if I was standing there and he was ready to perform that action, for example. But in that circumstance, mm-hmm. the way to, uh, if you want to use that that example of inviting the Satan in, well, there's that certain optimism where you go, well, I believe there's something in this person that's worth redeeming. I believe there's something that's worth redeeming in me, even though I have a very angry reaction to this. And so the way that neither of us resorts to violence is for me to try to be able to communicate in a caring, meaningful way, assuming this person means the best. And worst comes to worst, if he walks away saying, I wish you were dead and I'd like to do that to you, then I go, well, again, I put myself in the way of harm in order to point to the fact that I believe that there is something worth living for beyond that, right? And again, that's where Girard is useful. That is where Girard is helpful. Because if we can't do this with optimism, I'm not convinced that we can do it with love. Like, to be really, really blunt, I'm not convinced that you can be a perfect pessimist or a perfect cynic and still be a Christian who is living their lives out in a loving way. 
And Gerard does shine a light on that very quickly. Getting into the, our last question that I wanted to, to discuss a little bit is, I think, very specific to the statement that um, we kind of use as an opening for um, the conversation with Jeremy, which is something that he said in, in, in previous videos that he has released, um, you know, relative to Gerard and kind of the uses of Gerard within the Commons community and in some of the different conversations that they've, they've been engaging in. But one of the things that um, Jeremy has said is, Rene Girard is the most important or is going to be the most important theologian for the questions that the church is going to face in the 21st century. Um, so I guess for, we'll open it up and we'll start with Doug and then, and then we can, we can jump in from there. Um, but yeah, I guess, how would you, how would you respond to this? How have you been wanting to respond to this the, for the entirety of this conversation up to this point? This is this is the biggest downside of the fact that we're doing this like what two months after we actually sat down and really thought about all of this is yeah. we've all kind of gotten on the same page and anything you guys say just pulls away from my beautifully written essay. <laughs> it hurts me. Um, I, I think the answer is, uh, I mean, it, it's hard to answer this kind of question right up front, right? Because mm. to believe that Girard is the most important theologian is to believe, uh, and, and this is no disrespect to Jeremy Duncan in any way, um, but it is still to believe that the church is working through the same question across all streams, across all countries, across all races, across all denominations. But in regard to, to addressing the situation in Canada, like let's, uh, I'm going to tone it back from a full question to like, we're talking about developing a lowercase o orthodox church in Canada and the way that that is, is building. I can see Gerard as a foundationally, I, I, I can see him as a foundationally important figure when addressing violence. And there's a lot of violence already here. And there's a lot of violence still coming. We're importing it by the bucket load. Um, we are inflicting it on each other in a you know, for lack of any subtlety whatsoever in a, a post-Trump, current COVID, um, where almost any whim you can find 20 people to carry it out with you in some way online and go do the thing regardless of how good or violent or evil it is. Um, there's a lot of violence all over. And the fact that we're better at kind of tucking it under the rug here in North America to kind of look a little bit cleaner to the rest of the world sometimes does not change the fact that anybody living here and most people outside who are far from far from like having the wool pulled over their eyes, we are aware violence is here. And it's very, very well presented, right? Uh, I think Girard is very important. I think he's fascinating. I think he helps underscore the amount of violence we've let settle in our faith. Um, but that's, that's kind of the end of my pure positive approach here because my bias really starts to show and Chris has hinted at this and Tim has hinted at this because while Girard is an important part of this cross century, cross millennia, cross generational discussion of faith, I'm not totally convinced that what he brings to the table is unique. Um, <laughs> the theologian 
one views as most significant to the church in these times depends on what you see as the greatest issue facing the church. And so with no disrespect to Jeremy Duncan, he works in a church where a lot of Christians, for example, have left the church and come back. And so they're grappling with these academic questions, these historical problems where they've maybe felt abused or they've felt rejected or whatnot. Um, he works with people. He talks about Gen Z kind of coming in with a more of a fresh eye than other people where they aren't necessarily working with the same baggage and whatnot. Um, so it makes sense that they would be asking questions like, how did God allow that kind of violence to happen with the cross? Um, but if we're focusing on the development of Canadian Orthodoxy in Canada, the issue I see more personally um, and more, I would say, across Canada than sort of focused in a church because of the way Christianity has been separated from its history and fused with modern narratives of power. Girard is more important the less we talk about early Christians who died rather than participating in violence. The less you read Maximus, the more significant Girard is. The less you read um, Anselm, the more important Girard is. When you ignore 15 centuries of history and you ignore another five that has coexisted with you as another stream, whether you're talking orthodoxy or mainline Protestantism, the problem you run into is that you need the most modern, the most recent, uh, the most sort of on-the-nose sociological critique in order to be able to represent anything in your faith, right? Um, when you stop at John and you start again at Luther, then you have so many generations of people who talked about nonviolence. I mean, with my, my main focus being monastics, the amount of stories of these people dying for their faith rather than participating in violence, of Roman soldiers dying and freezing to death instead of participating in violence. There is story after story after story, um, right from Jesus, who the instant somebody pulls out a sword goes, I want nothing to do with your zealotry, throw that away and get it away from me. Um, to healing a Roman soldier who has his ear chopped off because violence is quite literally never the answer, even in the face of death by Jesus' narrative. To look at that, disentangle it from those narratives and say, now that I'm in North America and people are infringing on me in a particular way, we need to fight back or we'll end up with nothing. Is it, Once again, it's an understandable human reaction but all that you're doing is participating in the millennia's old failed experiment, right? You're not evil, you're not stupid, you're not anything like that. You're just, you're participating in a failed experiment and we've chosen another example right from the start. Um, so I, I, what I think is significant about Girard is what Girard does is he allows those of us who are unfamiliar with our past to pick up on the thread that's existed in Christianity and should and has to exist in a Canadian Orthodox community is since the inception of faith, right? He's He is a person who's joined in the conversation with Anselm and joined in the conversation with Maximus and joined in the conversation with anybody else who's had that discussion. And I think, you know, speaking as a, as somebody who is at least was raised in the evangelical church. I don't know what the heck I'd call myself now, but was raised in the evangelical church. It's something that's really, really important. Um, Girard is only as significant as you make him in light of how much of your history you've removed.
And if you refuse to put any of that history back in, then you will be building the entirety of your faith on a meta narrative of Girard with the inability to critique him, because all that's left in order for you to take that approach at all is Girard doing it. And there is no way to have a larger gap in your knowledge than to make sure that there's only one person saying anything. Mm-hmm. So that's my <laughs> my big spiel. Um, we've been hinting at it all along, right? I mean, bringing bringing up Basil, bringing up. Um, the fact that we need to consider our history, bringing up temporality, bringing up whatever, like really the crux of all of this is the reason why we talk about these writings in the present, right? Basil says da-da-da-da-da. Uh, Maximus says da-da-da-da-da. There's a, a linguistic and, and actually a language English-oriented reason for doing this, English in the in the sort of study, not the language. We talk about it in the present because that person's words are not invalidated and that the book the words exist presently. I remember getting explained that in my first year of, of English was one of the teachers talking about how we talk about it in a present tense, not in a past tense, unless you're talking about the history of them writing it. And there is this, this permanence, this presentness to what they're saying. And you're welcome to engage in dialogue with Basil. And you're welcome to try to contextualize Basil. And you're welcome to try to bring him into our current conversation. But at no point can you pretend that Basil didn't exist because it's inconvenient for you and you would rather build your entire theology on Girard, which again, to clarify, is not what I'm claiming Jeremy Duncan is doing, but I'm saying that it is entirely possible to do as an evangelical if you have no other touch points. Hmm. Maybe, I guess, one pushback I would say is that it's probably helpful to make a distinction between violence as such and the violence of the scapegoat mechanism, because otherwise, I like it's going to be really difficult to know where Gerard ends and you know previous conversations and discussions throughout the Christian faith you know begin. It's easy, I think, to jump onto the conversation of nonviolence and assume that that's just the thing that Girard is is pointing for, because like certainly he is arguing for a nonviolent vision of the gospel, and in that sense, there is a certain continuity with the threads of nonviolence within the Christian tradition. You know, whether patristic or Anabaptist, or in the nonviolent political action of modern liberation theologians. That said, I think there is a definite uniqueness in Girard with regards to the way that violence is understood and critiqued at a systemic level specific to the scapegoat mechanism. So maybe that would be like the first pushback and maybe you'll have have a comment of, of that distinction between scapegoat violence and violence as such. But then the other thing too that I would um, ask is, I wonder if the critique that you're mentioning in terms of you know, constructing your theology on the basis of Girard um, without respect to history depends upon a specific way of reading texts in general. So I guess my question is, why would it have to be the case that for Girard, really anyone, to become an important or even, even a primary voice, why would it have to be the case that that would involve a certain exclusivity with regards to previous voices? I suppose I'm, I'm more so curious as to where you're coming from on this. Mm-hmm. Yeah, absolutely. Uh, there's kind of the same answer to both, I suppose, um, which is the reason there is that leap 
um, is because I'll use this analogy at the risk of, of bothering people, I suppose, is that the, the Catholic Church and the Orthodox Church I describe as cruise ships. They are large, they have a long history that the church as a broad whole is aware of, and they move very, very slowly. Uh, and they just continue to move in the direction they think is best in regard to communication. The evangelical church, specifically, once again, I speak to broad Protestantism, but I have very little experience with mainline Protestantism, so I can really only speak to Protestantism in regard to evangelicalism. But in regard to evangelicalism, it is like a whole bunch of rowboats rowing in tandem. And while that makes them incredibly proficient at being able to reach individual people, it makes it easy for people to branch off where they think that they see the truth, for example, and so they go, well, this is more significant, let me row over there and take a look at it. It's a lot easier for them to function that way, and there are upsides and downsides to both. This is in no way saying one is more valid than the other, but the problem is, um, and this is really a whole other conversation if you start to branch off into it, but there are a lot of touch points that they have in common, and most of them have to do with the common marketplace of Christianity. Mm -hmm. And so the instant that somebody sat down, for example, and wrote a book about Girardian theology, and a bunch of, say, sort of larger pastors picked it up and began preaching it from the pulpit, you would see this rapid-fire connection that everyone would make, and that would be the hot topic and the defining point and you're not aware of history, and you're not aware of multiple other theologians, it's difficult to sit and consider multiple voices. And that sort of filtering almost happens, it almost happens automatically in the Catholic and Orthodox churches from what I've seen. Not, once again, the individuals, but it's kind of done for you, for better or for worse, by your priest or by your tradition, where you're taking these ideas through history that different people constructed, and so naturally you know there are other voices because you're not going to get baptized into the church otherwise, so you better know that there are a bunch of voices connected to these things. And so, again, this is this is not me trying to make one sound better than the other, but uh, because of that, it's very easy for the paddle boats to all suddenly start pivoting in a direction. And that mm. is something that really concerns me. Because when you say something like, Girard is the most important theologian that we will see in the 21st century, my gut reaction to that is, he is not, I don't think of it as, he's the one who is going to lead the discussions in regard to the thread that he has been pursuing as a continuation of the entirety of Christian history. I think of that being said to the churches I've participated in over the course of my life, which is probably about seven or eight evangelical churches, all kind of ranging from Baptist to Pentecostal and Alliance in, in the middle. And pretty much all of them, the immediate reaction could be, this is the person that we need to pay attention to. Not this is the topic, this is the idea. This is the person we need to pay attention to. So that's that's my answer to that question. And to the second question in terms of violence, it's a little bit shorter, which is just that the reason why I leap to violence rather than the scapegoat mechanism in regard to violence is because Jesus' death on the cross unveils the scapegoat mechanism to us as per Girard's explanation. And so for a Christian to ever participate in violence— all forms of violence are miniature reenactments of the scapegoat mechanism to Girard. 
And from a theological perspective, that would be choosing to actively participate in the thing that Jesus shone a light on, which then is is inherently evil to participate in. So I'm not necessarily telling people that to be a Christian, you have to be a pacifist per se, but giving Girard perfect benefit of the doubt and assuming what he's saying is a proper view of Christianity to participate in violence ever would by Girard's standard be to try to reenact the thing Jesus already broke? Hmm. Yeah, I think that's I think that's a fair point. Um yeah, like with regards to Girard and nonviolence, I agree. Like I, I don't think that Girard should be kept separate from the overall conversation about nonviolence. Still, I think that because of the uniqueness of Girard's approach as an analysis and a critique of systemic violence, there is a different thing in what Gerard is describing and say um, an early Anabaptist assertion that, you know, directly taken from the Sermon on the Mount in following the teachings of Jesus as Lord, then violence is removed off the table. You're per- perhaps you're arriving at the same space, but you're going to be going through a different process to get there. I do think that there's something particularly valuable in what Gerard brings to the table that would be missing if we, you know, if we bypassed him in favor of, say, the patristics alone. Specific to the issue of the evangelical marketplace, though, like, I'm not, I'm not sure that even an exclusive reading of Gerard at the expense of earlier voices would necessarily be a bad thing entirely at least not compared with, you know, not engaging with him at all. But at this point, I do want, I want to hand it over to uh, Chris for uh, Chris's perspective on this, on this question. <laughs> I actually, um, when Jeremy states that um, Gerard is the most important theologian in the 21st century, or will be, I think largely depends on your view of what the 21st century is going to be. And what hmm. its purpose is, um, if the 21st century is going to be a time of reflection and kind of digesting of what the 20th century was, of the, you know, the, the century of, of genocide, then sure, I actually think that he's going to be really important. And how could he not be, right? And especially with what Jeremy Duncan was saying about how, you know, he's seeing a lot of Zoomers come to comments right is that this is the kind of thing that they're that they're interacting with and that they're actually you know actively seeking out to interact with but i Mm. can't see them sitting in that and ruminating on that especially in the way that we have before um Mm. like they're not going to ruminate on gerard the same way that our parents ruminated on billy graham Mm. and I, i think that's significant right um in that Gerard is a really important, has really important ideas, has an incredibly good um, perspective, which is extraordinarily valuable. Uh, but I just, I can't see them sitting on him for 30 years. If I was going to say that there was going to be a theologian that was going to be like, quote unquote, most important theologian of the 21st century. Um, mm-hmm. I think that there would have to be a good amount of the church, um, whatever that means, that would be pretty, you know, tuned into what this person was saying and, you know, 
and parsing through it all and ruminating on it for probably a good third of the century. And I just, I can't see anybody doing that. And mind you, um, I am wrong about most things I say. So I could be totally wrong about this. And it's like, as it turns out, yeah, like he is, you know, you know, go to 2190 or like 2090. It's like, oh yeah, by the way, you know, and everybody's been on this Gerard thing for the last 30 years. Um, I think it largely depends on what your assumptions of the 21st century are. And on top of that, I think it also largely depends on what your assumptions of what the church is are. Um, like if you're talking about specifically the evangelical church in North America, yeah, sure. Actually, probably yes. And if, if Gerard was the thing that they were focused on for the 21st century, I think we'd all be in a much better place. Um, so like check that one off, please. Yes. Let's make that a thing. I'd be all about that. And I sincerely hope that Jeremy's right. And that he is particularly with the way that Jeremy talks about Gerard. Um, mm -hmm. I think we touched on this a little bit whenever we were talking about, or we were reacting to in our conversations, what happens um, at the white house. Um, I think when somebody in the church is, you know, that willing to look at church history as Jeremy Duncan is, and, and that, and as willing as he is to, you know, take into account kind of the intricacies of the movements of the culture around him, mm -hmm. being able to wrestle with the idea of like, yeah, there is an expanding idea of gender. There's an expanding idea of sex. There's an expanding idea of what, you know, these institutions mean. And we have to, you know, interact with the indigenous peoples and we have to interact with who we all are in the sense of being white and also in the sense of being diverse and what those all kind of intersect with. I think mm -hmm. Jeremy, in a lot of ways, represents what we've been talking about um, with regards to the development of a Canadian orthodoxy. And when mm -hmm. somebody like that, if, if their core, if their flag post is, I don't want people to die. Um, and they're wanting, <laughs> and if they're, they're if if that if the center of it is is really like let's like can we just love each other, and let's like let's actually do it, and that's what it sounds like whenever I hear Jeremy Duncan speak, and I really hope he's right, um, because if Girard becomes the most important theologian of the 21st century, I th it will be because people are trying to heal from what happened in the 20th and they'll be going about it in the correct way, if that's the case. In which mm. case, yeah, sign me up. <laughs> like, I'm all about that life. If it will happen, I have no idea. But I'm, again, I'm wrong about most things. So I'm probably also wrong about this. My hope is that the 21st century is a time of, of healing and a time of progress. Um, I suppose that was probably the hope of every single person going into every single new century ever. So yeah. we'll see. Yeah. Well, and I think with this mentioning like the desire for the 21st century to be a time where we can heal and reconcile and respond to I mean not just what happened in the 20th century but I think just the history specifically in our location as Canadians just the history of participation within colonial violence and exploitation 
Um, you know, like I, I really do think that Girard provides a compelling way forward for deconstruction and the critique of violent systems in the world that doesn't recreate that structure of violence through an inverted action of scapegoating or, you know, just repeats this, um, repeats the cycle sort of like a Marxist dialectical materialism. Instead, it, you know, opens up an original way out of this cycle altogether as we forsake any means of social organization that depends upon violence directed outwards towards any enemy or, or outcast group. Maybe one thing to add to this, and this is originally, so not building off of what Chris had mentioned, but like what I had originally been thinking about with response to this question is I'm reminded about what the value of reading and engaging with Girard was for me in my own particular process of deconstruction. Um, because honestly, a lot of that for me in terms of the deconstruction of the culture war Christianity of the larger evangelical landscape began with the study of history. Probably the most depressed that I've ever been in my life was uh, Christian History 1 and Christian History 2, uh, taught, by, taught by Andrew Clegger, who we'll get to have on the show uh, later, actually this month, which will be really fun. When you're in a culture and a cultural space, so the evangelical cultural space, that, as Doug has been mentioning, is very much disconnected from history. And in thinking about, you know, theological terms or doctrinal structures or interpretations of scripture as these kind of flat absolutes, there's this distance from the actual progression and, and events of history. And I think the negative ways that Christian society has functioned through that history. Like, when your gospel is so tightly focused on individual salvation in terms of securing a place in heaven to such an extent that things like liberation theology and its calls for social justice are seen as a distraction at best and a threat to some and or and the threat of some amorphous cultural marxism at worst there's very little room for a critique of christian society or to question that christian pursuit of political power um, or even, you know, to connect salvation within this world, not just the next. And so, like, in order to preserve the legacy of Christendom or the myth of the so-called Christian nation, there's a tendency to sanctify our history with a whitewashed narrative of the church universally standing separate from the surrounding culture and at times finding dominance within that culture as an ultimate good, increasing the harvest of souls for heaven. But then when you start to read and, and really engage with what has actually happened within the history of the church, you start to see the ways that Christianity or Christendom, maybe more aptly, there isn't separate from the historic contingencies that everyone else is subject to. And all of the... All of the acts of oppressive violence and coercion of force and, you know, fighting and jockeying for political power and, you know, using religion as a tool for that exploitation. Um, you see all of that there. You see that, um, you see that even in, 
even in things like at the Council of Nicaea, where we get, and through all the conversations of that era, you get these profound and glorious articulations of this idea of a Trinitarian God, which is phenomenal and incredible. And you have the drawing together or the canonization of scripture and saying like, you know, all of these things that are a part of the Christian community that we're going to bring together and gather into one place. Like even in that moment, you have present that same you know, jockeying for power, trying to secure positionality. You have, um, you know, a, a people that were persecuted then replicate that persecution now that, you know, the official religion becomes or the imperial religion becomes Christianity. And so you just see all these things and it's, it's incredibly disillusioning. And for me, that question became like, if we see the same patterns of humanity replicated both within the structures of the church itself, but then also those societies that were labeled or identified as a part of Christendom, then it does raise the question, like, does has any of this worked? Like, is this gospel or this good news actually something remotely meaningful or having the capacity to bring liberation from these structures and ways of being human that we seem to continually find ourselves in? Or is it just something that we can hold on to as an expectation that, you know, maybe one day when all of this, you know, is blown up and done away with that, you know, it turned out to be okay because a sufficient number of people didn't end up in hell. And that's a really troubling question. And for me, engaging with Gerard and taking some of his ideas and testing them on, on different aspects of the Christian narrative and the scriptures, I think for me helped provide some meaningful language to be able to understand and articulate how the gospel and the incarnation and, and the, the teachings and the life of Jesus actually has a capacity for genuine and real social transformation outside of this expectation of, you know, just a, a flight from our present circumstance, but that it can provide language and meaning and a way for genuine peace in the genuine real grounded society and politics that we live within and i think like one aspect of that was taking some of the jordan analysis and then testing that on some of the articulations say specifically within the writings of of paul and so like in ephesians 2 where paul talks about christ as our peace who brings both uh, together as one, bringing reconciliation through the cross. For me, what was helpful about Girard was is taking some of that analysis of the deconstruction of, of the scapegoat mechanism and asking if that is an aspect of what's taking place in the cross of Christ, does this actually provide a way forward for genuine social transformation where peace is able to be secured in Christ in something more meaningful than my individual interior state, but peace genuinely between between parties? And to me, this again is is where I think engaging in the conversation is worthwhile. Like not not as though Gerard were an addendum to our sacred scripture, but more so as a conversational voice to say, what is already here that if we're able to see it and perceive it on the level of genuine social interaction and construction, can this have meaning not in our interior space alone, but in our public sphere? And to me, that is where all of this becomes meaningful and, and relevant, especially as we're talking about a you know, in, in quotes, Canadian orthodoxy that involves the contextualization of 
the transformative power of the gospel within our the real social dynamics that we find ourselves as a part of yeah yeah absolutely i mean just while while that's a good conclusion i suppose you can cut me off here if you want because that is a good place to end but for what it's worth in terms of my experience like i rather than applying it to the bible right i mean you guys saw as i turned around took gerard and i tried to apply him in regard to the concept of the Satan as being something that is the same as violence and then turning and looking at society and the direction society was going, particularly in regard to the assumption that we're all doomed. Like this is a, mm-hmm. a sort of scientific foregone conclusion in a sense where you have the doomsday clock, you have the discussions of global warming, you have yada, yada, yada. Um, yeah. There are all kinds of people trying to analyze the way that capitalism can also decimate us and and whatnot. Um, so, interestingly, when you start talking about that and you look at it in regard to, in my case, it actually ended up being art that talked about that sort of thing. It still works. It's a good grounding point for discussion. It's a place where Christianity has a sort of window into the discussion without being shoehorned. Um but there's still a very like it's still functional in a very public space, so it's not mm. mandatory that you have to be ta- speaking from a Christian perspective to be able to talk about Girard. But you also don't have to totally disconnect yourself from Christian experience to discuss that in light of Girard, right? And so there's there's very clearly a cultural social space. There are things being actively discussed. The evangelical church has never had a counter reformation. We've had splinter groups. And so someone like Gerard can actually generate something like that um, if it's in enough sort of of the social consciousness. And so I really do think that that is that is something that Gerard gives us in a way that very few other people do, I think, in that you can discuss him in light of sociology. You can discuss him in light of theology. You can discuss him in light of philosophy. You can do it as a Christian, as an atheist, as somebody of any other religion, and there's still significance there. Again, I mean, what what's always a sticking point in my mind, and maybe only because I've seen people go so far in that direction, is, you know, he, he has to be the continuation of a conversation. He has to be. Because if he is ever the be-all, end-all of conversation, then you're you're fighting with modernism all over again with its meta-narratives. You're fighting with all kinds of sticking points, uh, all the flaws within it, right? Or you're mistaking a reading of the Bible for the only reading of the Bible. There's so many places where you can accidentally trip on Girard and end up face first on the floor um, Mm. for all the good that he brings, right? Um, But I mean, that could just be my inherent caution from watching it happen all over the place. So, you know, grain of salt, of course, but... I mean, there were things that I actively saw happen even while I tried to go down this rabbit hole of what is this what is this destruction in relation to art when it comes to this cycle of violence, right? Mm-hmm. So anyway, that was that was my experience with it at least. I think that's probably worth cutting because Tim's was cooler. <laughs> no, I think that's good. Chris, do you want to end with Basil? I was looking through to see if I could find something that was going to be like really poignant at this. Um, I had 
Athanasius out I was looking through. I have Basil out. Um, I think what's worth mentioning in all this, and maybe the common thread in all this, is that um, we're kind of juggling with, with history and we're, we're juggling with all these things of, of Christian history all happening at the same time and what that means for us today. Um, I think what's really cool about history is that what happened 500 years ago is still very much happening right now. Um, mm. And I think that's the cool, really, what's really interesting about Christian history is that it feels as though the incarnation is in palpable ways still happening. And mm. that means the resurrection is still happening. And maybe 2000 years is far less time than we actually think it is. And maybe this mm. whole causality thing is much different than we think it is. Um, mm. In which case, um, I'll maybe recite, um, I had a really difficult last couple months, um, for a number of reasons. Um, but throughout it, I, um, uh, I took a prayer from my, one of my very favorite saints ever and just recited it to myself as many times as I could. And it's a bit of a lengthy one, but there's a part of it that I think is really cool in that. He's talking about something that's really poignant to him when he's alive in kind of the fifth and sixth century, which had been codified during the fourth century, which had been discussed during the third century, which then Maximus was taking on during the seventh century and um, which was then being re-upped and re-contextualized you know, during the 12th century. And we're still working with today and this course, the Trinity. Um, so during this hardest time of my, of my life, um, I recited to myself, I rise today through a mighty strength, through the invocation of the Trinity, through belief in the threeness, through confession of the oneness of the creator of creation. Um, and I think, yeah, what's cool about that is the temporality of it all and that there is this beauty that's still happening now that was happening 2000 years ago. Um, and maybe, just maybe, that's some kind of meta narrative that we haven't figured out yet. Thanks for joining us in this episode of the Canadian Orthodox. This episode was recorded and produced by myself, Tim Harder, in Treaty 7 territory, the ancestral and traditional territory of the Blackfoot Confederacy, the Kenai, Bikani, and Siksika, as well as the Tsutina First Nation and Stony Nakoda First Nation. We recognize the land as an act of reconciliation and gratitude to those on whose territory we reside. If you connected with this conversation and would like to stay up to date with future episodes, please subscribe to this feed wherever you get your podcasts. New episodes drop every other Monday. You can help us to promote the show. You can help us to promote the show by leaving a review and sharing on social media. And you can also connect with me on Instagram at IamTimotheos. If you'd like to help support this project financially, you can do so by going to patreon.com forward slash Tim Harder. This is a passion project run on the side of my real job. So your support not only helps to cover the monthly production expenses, but also helps to free up time for me to create more content and to expand the reach of the show. We want to thank you again for joining us and participating in this conversation. We'll talk soon. Peace.